Welcome to another episode of Venture Unlocked, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the business of venture capital. I'm your host, Samir Kaji. And today's episode is with Jamie Rowe, who helps manage the venture investing practice at Virtus, a really active family office investor. As many people listening know, family offices continue to be a critical source of capital for venture funds, but it's also an LP segment that's very opaque and really hard to navigate. To help unlock some of the mystery of family office investing, Jamie and I talk about the world of family offices as a whole, how they at Virtus think about venture investing from both a data-driven standpoint as well as a qualitative perspective, and their overall views on the venture market today. Now let's get into the episode to hear all of that and more. Jamie, uh, it's so great to have you on the show. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, I am too. And both because you have such a unique perspective on venture and use data really to direct a lot of your beliefs in portfolio construction and the type of funds you invest in, but also because you work within a family office. And as we all know, family offices have continued to play a bigger and bigger role in the funding environment, both directly into companies and of course, directly into funds themselves. And in the study that we did in 2018, we found 70% of capital going into fund ones were from family offices and high net worth individuals. It's also a segment that's not as well understood. Family offices are innately very different. They're very private. And it's really hard to break through that opaqueness. Can you just walk us through why that's the case and what you found as a family office investor? Sure. So I started my career out at Bloomberg working on their credit analytics team. And then I moved over to their public equity research product covering property, casualty, and life insurers. This sector was super boring, but I was able to really build up my writing skills and really start to understand the value of data and how it can be used in the financial services industry. But after being there for about four and a half years, I really wanted to move back to Philadelphia where I grew up. Way too many New York sports fans at Bloomberg for me. So uh, I applied to a job at Veritas on the CFA website doing due diligence on hedge funds and private market funds. I was lucky enough to get the job in 2015, but I took it not really knowing what a family office did or what alternative investing meant, except for what I had learned while studying for my CFA. But the family is such a long history, and I work with a great team that I've been able to learn a lot from their past experiences and quickly learn about investing in alternatives, especially on the venture side. I want to get into you know, the actual investment thesis when you do invest in venture funds. Before we go into that, you and I talked right before this podcast on why family office, the environment is so opaque. What should GPs know about family offices and why they act the way they do in terms of privacy? Yeah, so I would say, you know, I've been in the family office world for about five and a half years now. And what I've really learned is that no family office is the same. Some have very particular buckets that an investment has to fit perfectly into. Some are very nimble and flexible to investing in what they feel are the best opportunities in the current market. But what I think about family offices is they have the flexibility to write smaller checks and move faster than larger institutions like endowments, which allow them to invest in seed or emerging managers. I think that's a huge benefit of of the family office world relative to institutional larger check writers. And I know your investment thesis is highly centered, if not exclusive, on you know writing checks at the seed stage managers. 
The other item I think which is really interesting about your model is that you act very institutional in some ways and that you're very data driven. But why did you decide exclusively to focus on seed stage? What has your data and research shown that you know got you so excited about that space? The explosion of data over the past five to seven years has allowed the family office to use decision science in our investment decision-making process, or in other terms, leverage the law of large numbers to gain insights into the underlying structures of each of the asset classes that we invest in. And this has allowed us to make better investment decisions. We manage capital for generations seven, eight, and nine. And if you look at the history of the investments we are making, we were not using decision science and it was not yielding the results that we were looking for to compound the family's capital for another 200 plus years. So the first step in this process was making sure that we understood the structure or underlying distributions of all the asset classes that we invest in. And what we learned in regards to venture is late stage looks a lot like growth equity and buyout from a return standpoint, hovering around a 12 to 13%, but with higher risk in terms of getting your capital back. And early stage venture is power law driven. The mean return from 1990 to 2015 is roughly a 50% versus the median at about a seven. So if you think about that, if you did every single early stage venture fund over that 25-year period in the Burgess data set we used, you would have gotten a 50% IRR. But if you only did a handful of funds over that 25-year period, you would have had a high probability of a 7% return. So this took us some time to process and understand since we had never seen this in the investment world before. And our goal at the family office is really to compound capital for future generations, meaning we can be extremely long duration focused. And given we already allocate to buyout and growth equity, which is similar returns to late stage venture, we shifted around our strategy to be solely focused on seed stage or the first institutional check into a startup where the power law is the strongest. And that's the goal of our venture portfolio. It's to capture that mean return, if not surpass it. I agree that early stage can significantly outperform other stages, particularly when you look at cash on cash returns. Of course, the other side of the coin is there's longer term illiquidity and, and much more risk. And if you look at the flame out rates of companies within an early stage portfolio, anywhere between 40 and 60% yield to zero to one. And power law becomes a much, much more important determinant on the success of an early stage portfolio. How do you yourself then mitigate against that type of risk and make sure that you're not just getting the median returns, but you're consistently in the top quartile funds? Yeah. So when we looked at that data, we realized right off the bat, we can't do every single fund that that existed in that Burgess data set and, and going forward, we don't have the capital or the people or the time. So what we looked at was what is that startup ecosystem and saw there's roughly 2,000 startups that receive their first institutional check of funding per year. But to your point, only 2% of them become an outlier. That's a pretty tiny amount. And I definitely wouldn't go gambling in Vegas or in Atlantic City with those types of odds. So what we realized was, you know, we did a Monte Carlo analysis and determined that if we statistically sampled 20% of startups over a three-year period, that would equate to about 1,200 companies. 
we would be 95% confident that we would capture anywhere from 6 to 18 outliers. And the more startups you get exposure to, the better your return would be. Because in a power law distribution, your winners are so big that they make up for all the losses. So the goal for us is to gain exposure to 1,200 underlying startups over three vintage year periods by investing in 20 to 25 diversified funds. As you look at these diversified funds, the one thing that comes to my mind is that a lot of the seed investors do co-invest with each other. How do you ensure that you're getting that level of diversification where you're covering approximately those 1,200 unique portfolio companies across those 25 managers? That's a great question because that Monte Carlo analysis was done without replacement. So we need to make sure that we have exposure to about 1,200 unique companies. And for us, there is some overlap in our current portfolio, I'd say roughly about 5%. And we see that as beneficial just because we're getting increased ownership in those overlapping companies. But it's definitely something uh, that we target and monitor and have built a portal that gives us exposure to the underlying portfolio companies so the family can see exactly what they have exposure to down to the stage, the geography, and sector. On the side of then building that portfolio, 20 to 25 unique funds is larger than what I would consider most smaller funded funds doing and maybe even um, you know family offices in, in terms of the number of names. But I suspect that you look at a lot of funds per year. I don't, I don't know what the exact number is. And a small portion get to your level of wanting to make an allocation. I'd be really curious on how do you evaluate these funds? So you have this data-driven model that gives you a sense of what the proper portfolio construction is. How does that then filter into your evaluation of the different funds you look at? We've definitely spoken to probably over 300 seed funds to date. And so to decide which ones to actually invest in can be really difficult. But in the beginning, what we realized is we needed to positively bias our sampling when deciding where to place our capital in seed, since the family has capital limitations to how many funds we can do. So using data science again, it led us to be extremely geographically and network focused. We target funds that invest in the first institutional check into a startup with a focus on California and New York. The data showed us that roughly 64% of all outliers in the U.S. come out of California, with New York at the second largest outlier producing state at 12%. What was most interesting to us is the expected value of those outliers, which for California is roughly $8.7 billion, while New York is $2.4 billion and the U.S. as a whole is $2.1. So for us, we would need to capture almost four outliers in New York to equate to just one in California. And we still believe that today. I know the headlines say everyone's moving to Texas and Miami, Bay Area, California is dead. But we've seen data from apartment lists that indicates this isn't the full picture. The top three destinations of where San Francisco renters are moving to is San Jose, Sacramento, and LA, all California cities. And actually, PitchBook just came out with a report that said 17 of the 22 U.S. companies to ever receive a private valuation of $10 billion or more is from the Bay Area. LA had three. It's a market we also target. New York had one, and so did North Carolina. And their data shows 
of the 734 rounds completed at $1 billion or more in the U.S., 76.3% have been in California. That's larger than the numbers we had. So for us, we think about it in terms of an opportunity cost of where we deploy our dollars, and that's why we factor in expected values. I would also say that the second key piece for us is getting exposure to all sectors that exist today and in the future. This means targeting generalist funds to get broad sector coverage, but typically general tech managers are not investing in life sciences, and this is an area we want exposure to. It has its own unique profile compared to general tech. I mentioned the outlier production rate of general tech startups was 2%, but in life sciences, it's actually 10%. You don't get those halo type exits, the Ubers, the Facebooks of the world, but the frequency of these exits is much higher. Earlier than general tech, since big pharma has outsourced the R&D to be M&A focused, and typically anywhere from $250 million up to $2 billion. So we target roughly a third of the funds we invest in to be in life sciences, particularly therapeutics, as this really helps put a floor to the overall return of our early stage venture portfolio. It's interesting that you brought up life sciences. There aren't very many life sciences that funds that we see at the seed level. And, you know, part of the, uh, the historical reason was the belief that, you know, the uh, outcomes were incredibly binary and the amount of capital needed to, you know, get a pharmaceutical or even some med device companies to an exit was high. Therefore, you know, the dilution that an early stage manager would take was um, extraordinarily high compared to some of the, the tech companies and the, you know, generalist tech funds. But going back to your point about geography and what I'm hearing from you is, the exits are bigger in these historically viewed tier one markets, California. And the fact that the valuations at entry are higher doesn't dissuade you from investing in those markets. I am curious to hear that in those areas, the number of seed funds is also very, very exponentially higher than you know, some of the other regions, whether it be the Midwest, you, know, you brought up Florida. So doesn't that make picking funds that much harder? And doesn't that make it more difficult to find a manager that is going to get that outlier that's the $8.7 billion you know, type of outlier? Absolutely. And that's why we really target a specific type of seed fund. We really look for funds that are about $75 million or less. We really feel that grounds them in seed stage venture. And I should caveat, that's on the general tech side. Life sciences can be a lot more capital intensive and, and typically requires to put more capital to work. For us, we see, you know, there's these $200 million funds out there and they say they do some seed, but it's really hard to deploy all that capital in that first institutional check-in. So that's the first initial mark for us is fund size. Second, we want our portfolio managers to really be investing in about 50 companies. That's how we plan to get to that 1,200 company target. And I know 50 portfolio companies sounds really diversified and very contrarian to what most LPs look for and what most VC funds too. But we decided on 50 because with an outlier production rate of 2%, we can expect the manager to capture at least one outlier at random. And if they have any skill in picking winners, then that's gravy to us. Because if you look at the data from Sequoia's U.S. seed fund, they did 43 seed investments in 2019 and 2020. 
that's pretty diversified. So for a seed fund to be at 20 to 25 investments in total, you have to be better at picking than Sequoia. So we want our managers to be taking enough shots on goal while also getting as much ownership as possible on their first check. We prefer a low reserve ratio as following on to the next round means you're following on into a lower multiple investment than that first potential check. And we're very multiple focus. And I would say the next piece is we target geographies, but we also target networks with consistent outlier production. So this means identifying funds that can give us access to the Teal Fellowship, to the Stanford community, to YC, to PayPal Mafia, for example. And we actually built a graph database to help us visualize the network effects of our portfolio. So we've backed over 20 seed funds to date. And for us to add that 20th manager, we really need to see how they will enhance the overall network centrality and diversification of our portfolio. So we ask these managers for the top co-investor and follow-on investor list. And using decision science, we've identified top brand investors that have the highest outlier production rate at the early stage. So think series B and below. This graph database visually allows us to see if we had invested with this manager, who are we gaining exposure to, and essentially, who are we front-running? Are you getting in before YC? Are you getting in before or with Sequoia? This is all part of our initial process, is we want to remain data-driven in the beginning. It also helps reduce bias, which definitely exists in the investment world. And further along in the process, we'll absolutely confirm that these relationships exist via reference calls, but early on, we're just looking to gain insights into the GP's network effects. Yeah, it's really interesting, and it is contrarian to the way a lot of LPs invest in funds in many cases opt for those smaller concentrated higher ownership type of portfolios that have 20 to 30 companies max. We have seen, on the other hand, portfolios that are much larger in size, whether it be the 500 startups, the SV Angels, the YCs that have done extraordinarily well by creating much more of an index across early stage companies uh, to get the best probability of, of an outlier. Now, the use of data science is really interesting. The other side of this coin is the qualitative aspect. And I would suspect that there are certain evaluation criteria you use to evaluate the manager on the non-quantitative metrics. What are those? And how do you then think about things like whether that manager has prior investing experience? Are they an operator? How do they come across in the uh, pitch meeting? Can you just walk us through how you think about that? Yeah, I would say, you know, the initial process for us at the family office is really to be data driven in the very beginning. So we want to make sure that, you know, this manager is going to hit all the metrics that we look for initially when targeting a seed fund. And then when we move on to the deeper diligence process, we'll really move into the qualitative aspect. I want to understand their value add to the portfolio companies. I also want to understand, you know, what's their reputation among founders? How are they able to manage their time appropriately? You know, if we're looking for funds that are trying to do 50 portfolio companies, I cannot have them 
joining board seats of 50 startups. I want to make sure that their value add is really helping them get to that next round of funding and who is in their network and how are they going to go about doing it. So the qualitative aspect really kind of comes in later on in the process when we do references and we want to make sure that they're being fiduciaries because we are institutional like investors and we need to be investing in high quality teams. I think your question about spin-out managers versus operator turn managers is really interesting because we are data-driven and we don't specifically target a type of GP. We really look for seed funds that are in our geographies, networks, and have our portfolio construction. But what we've seen is that if the GP is a successful operator turned manager, they tend to be more concentrated in their portfolio construction because they like to join the board. They may have had a great success in the past and feel like, you know what, I can make this company a winner. I'm going to make this the next Uber or Facebook. So they want to spend significant time with them and tend to join those board seats. I would say most of our GPs have either spun out of VCs or have been an operator of sorts, but did some type of angel investing on the side realize shots on goal do matter, especially at seed. And we've backed first-time funds with limited track records, but their network access was so strong because of companies that they worked at before that we could confirm that through references. And they deeply understood the power law nature of early stage venture. So we felt comfortable investing. Do you then, going back to this whole power law concept and what you described earlier in terms of initial checks versus follow-ons with a focus on putting as much early into that initial check and reserving a very small piece, you know, for, you know, the series A or series B or, or any of the, uh, the following investments that happen. Have you found there to be an ideal ratio of initial versus follow-on? A lot of the seed funds we see follow something that's close to a 50-50 or a one-to-one what do you view as the right ratio for, you know, seed manager that has 50 portfolio companies? In a perfect world, zero reserve ratio. But we understand that that's not necessarily realistic. And especially in this current environment, sometimes you may have written that first check at the pre-seed round, and then you did a bridge or an extension round, and we're able to add another 50 to 100K, you know, into that company before it reached a seed round or before it reached a series A, increasing your ownership. So we understand the dynamics of the current environment are difficult to give us just the first check in and no reserves. But I think sometimes it can come down to fund size too. You know, it's really interesting. You know, I mentioned earlier that we target 75 million or less, but we recently backed a seed fund in general tech that's creeping up above 100 million, but they base their portfolio construction and check size on the power law principles to optimize the probability of a 10x return on each dollar invested. So for their portfolio, they plan to do about 75 to 80 startups, leading about a third of them. And what's really important to us with a fund size like that is a very low reserve ratio. Because if you're at 100 million, most of the time that leads you to be about 50% reserve to follow on into the Series A, but most of their capital will all be deployed at first check-in because they underwrite each investment to achieve a probability weighted return of a 10x. So we do have targets on deal count and fund size, but an important part of being data-driven is also holding your opinions loosely 
and being flexible to understanding not every opportunity will fit perfectly in my box of 50 checks, first check-in, and no reserves. This is why we spend significant time underwriting the manager's portfolio construction and long-term goals for the firm so we can have that balance of ownership and checks. I was just thinking about something that we've seen from a trend standpoint over the last you know, five or six years. And of course, all of us have seen this massive increase in the number of funds. But what LPs have become more amenable with is funding you know, first-time managers that are also solo GPs. Given your construct of wanting managers to have you know, at least 50 investments, be very, very focused on the type of value that they add to companies, how do you look at solo managers given that they may have restrictions in terms of how much time they have, how much they can help these portfolio companies? How does that play into your thinking when evaluating a single GP fund versus one that perhaps has slightly more AUM and more partners and associates? The emergence of solo capitalists is, is a clear trend that's happening nowadays. But when we started investing in seed back in 2016, one of the first GPs we backed was a solo GP. And we never even used that term solo capitalist, but it was one of the first funds we backed. And, you know, they were a small fund and did a lot of portfolio companies. They invested in over 50 deals. And, you know, for us, what we realized is a solo GP at the seed round is not necessarily a bad thing. Their value add was writing the term sheet and helping them get capital in the next round. And what's really interesting is at seed, those rounds are syndicated. So there wasn't this concern if something happened to just that solo GP that all of a sudden these portfolio companies would fail because, you know, it's not like a buyout type manager where they're taking control investments and really revamping and firing the whole sales force and the CEO and changing out management, they're there to provide capital. And also, you know, we've invested at the family office in over 180 partnerships. So we've seen a lot across all asset classes. And we've also seen disagreements that have led to massive headaches between management teams at funds. And that can lead to an ugly divorce in year seven or eight where they're fighting over, you know, the carry and they're fighting over specifics of the underlying fund. And so by investing in a solo GP, you don't have that risk. There's no team risk necessarily associated with backing a solo GP. What we really just had to make sure was that they could manage their time properly and realize if you're one person doing 50 plus deals your value add better be capital and network, not board seats. It makes complete sense to me, and it aligns with my experience of seeing so many partnership dissolutions for whatever reason versus a solo GP. And the old view was the risk is somebody gets hit by a bus, which is much, much lower than two people not getting along or three people not getting along. But to be fair, the other side of the uh, equation is as you increase your fund size in terms of number of companies, as you raise multiple funds, how do you manage your time effectively to ensure that you're still staying competitive by having a brand of helping founders, picking the right companies, not missing out on things? How have you evolved your thinking, given that the market has expanded so much in backing solo GPs back in 2015 versus now? And what do you want to see 
from these GPs and how they they manage their time in um, all the things that they need to do to be successful. The big criteria for us is, you know, we're looking to back these managers, not just once, but hopefully forever or or for future funds. And so a key piece in our underwriting process is what are your goals for your brand for the next five to 10 years? Is your goal to stay the premier first check writer and, and really be a key value add because your passion lies with early stage startups? Or is your goal right now just to have a bunch of shots on goal, get lucky with some winners and move up to that top tier series A space because now you have a brand and you captured a few early wins. And so, you know, we're really looking to back the GPs that have their passion lie with that first check in. And so what we found to be most helpful is, you know, were they a partner at another firm or or were they heavily involved in in Facebook and Twitter and, you know, an Airbnb? So they have such a vast network effect where anyone leaving one of those top tier companies to go start a new company, they have access to. And they're going to be the first person that that employee leaving, you know, an Airbnb or Twitter is going to go talk to and say, hey, I'm thinking about starting this company. What do you think? And so it's really about the the network effect and who you know and how you can help a founder, whether it's just, you know, you have a Rolodex of people that work in a certain sector that you can really help bring in from a hiring standpoint, or you have a Rolodex of a bunch of Series A investors that, hey, I'm going to write you that C check and I'm going to give you a bunch of introductions. And so the biggest thing for us is making sure that they have unique network effects. And we backed a GP first time fund that uh, said they had monthly phone calls with a handful of Series A funds. And later on in the reference calls, we confirmed that. And they said, yeah, we call him up because his level of notes, even on opportunities that he pass on, are so amazing that we want to be in constant contact. And that was a huge benefit for us to have those, you know, confirmed reference calls that he speaks with these top tier Series A firms monthly because of his quality of work. Yeah, it sounds like, you know, the most important thing is understanding where that superpower lies, being consistent, of course not overstating what you actually do when talking to LPs like yourselves, because those diligence checks are, are done. Since you do back so many first-time managers, you also know that one of the issues with first-time managers is getting to that first close, getting people to be incented to come to the first close and not be in a situation where you have a lot of people hanging around the hoop waiting for that first shoe to drop. What's your view on being part of that first close? And are there things that GPs can do to accelerate and incentivize people to come in, you know, before that final close. You know, the most important thing for us as institutional investors is making sure our fund managers can hit their minimum viable fund size. So I think it's important for a GP to know what that is and how they will execute a fund, even if they don't raise more than that. They need to have a well-communicated plan around how to execute their strategy at different fund sizes, including first size or first close AUM and final close AUM. And they also need to think about, you have to take out management fees and expenses. You know, we require audited financials, which the LPs do pay for, 
but it does reduce the amount of capital that you can theoretically deploy into a startup. So we've had discussions with our GPs in our diligence process about, hey, we'll complete our work, we'll get IC approval, and we'll invest in you contingent on you raising X amount of dollars. This is usually a discussion point with the GP, and we come to a compromising middle ground of where they think their minimum viable fund size is, and we think the minimum viable fund size is. And this is a way for the GP to tell prospective LPs, hey, we back them, but it also makes sure that we're covered if they can't raise enough capital to execute on the strategy. I like the concept of minimum viable fund size. These are from Sapphire and others have, have talked about that. Is there a guideline on what that typically is as a percentage of target? You know, I really think that can come back to uh, the GP's background. So were they successful in a prior endeavor and that they really don't need the management fees? Or is this a GP that needs the management fee to survive and, and pay for, you know, their monthly costs? Also, you have to consider how many GPs are there. We've backed funds with, you know, five or six different GPs, or we've backed funds that are just one GP. So minimum viable fund size can be really dependent on the specific fund, their AUM, and their background. And, you know, it's usually a conversation that we'll have with them in the middle of our process just to get comfortable knowing what we require to invest. Yeah, I appreciate that perspective. And in it, I do agree that there's some level of bespokeness with, you know, looking at a minimum viable fund size. I want to zoom out a little bit in terms of where you see the market today. You have all this great data that you've collected over so many different years. The market is constantly evolving with the number of funds out there, the specialization, the regionalization. What are the major trends that you're seeing and what do you think the market holds for the next three to five years of seed investing? You know, we already touched on solo capitalists, but I think that that's definitely a trend that, that's going to continue and, and to benefit, you know, the seed ecosystem, providing more flexibility to a lot of GPs that can, you know, build up a, a portfolio and then for fun to become a lot more institutional like. But what I also, you know, have seen is, you know, these YC for emerging manager platforms, which I think are super beneficial to the seed ecosystem. You know, back in the beginning of our program, um, we built some code to parse the SEC website to identify every single uh, seed fund or venture fund coming to market, any Reg D filing, we'd be notified. Then we would have to take that and put that into a database and search social media, CV insights, pitch book, anything we could find just to figure out, is this venture fund doing seed? Where's their geography? You know, what's the fund size target? What are their network effects? And so in the very beginning, it was so outbound. But with these YC for emerging manager platforms, it's going to be really helpful to, to really help these managers know what LPs are going to ask for. They'll be prepared in fundraising because I've seen many decks that don't offer the information that LPs want. And it can create network effects that will ultimately benefit the GP deal flow. And I know you are working on something that will help matchmaking the GPs and the LP side, which we're super excited about that, you know, these platforms are, are coming you know, to the market that are going to help elevate the GPs for their fund one and fund two and help match up LPs that are looking for that because not everyone has the resources 
that we do to build code and speak with 300 plus seed funds just to find 20 to 25 we like. And then for the trend that I see starting now and growing significantly over the next five years, you know, we touched on it before, it's life sciences. The cost of drug discovery continues to decline and Big Pharma continues to outsource more of its R&D into M&A. The IPO market has been strong for biotech companies, and they're largely used as financing events because they'll IPO with no revenue, which you would never see in general tech. I mean, we talk about no profitability, but no revenue, that's super unique to the life sciences stage. And when we started investing in seed, there was not a lot of truly early stage life sciences funds, but we've seen a number of these funds enter the market over the past year especially in computational biology, synthetic biology, biomanufacturing, and therapeutics. And there's a lot of room for that ecosystem to grow, especially given the pandemic's focus on science, that the next five years will be huge for that sector and birth a lot more seed funds. I think your points are spot on. And the other trend that we see and we're particularly excited about is the increasing number of diverse managers coming to market, getting funded and closing fund sizes that are actually significant enough to move the needle for the industry. And it's sorely needed. It's still in the early days, but we are extremely, extremely excited about it and see some of the great work so many folks are doing to help foster this. Moving now to our final segment, which is our heat check round. I want to start off with the question of now that you've been an LP in so many different funds and invested in funds for six years. What is the number one learning that you found as an LP? You know, we've invested across all the asset classes and we keep our diligence process pretty similar, whether it's a hedge fund, a real estate fund, or a venture fund. And what I've learned the most is emerging manager fund LPAs are not of institutional quality and most LPs do not do legal reviews. Also, most GPs don't know exactly what's in their LPA. So I've learned the hard way when I'm running for the close of a fund I really like and I need to get my work done that I have to budget enough time to review the LPA and institutionalize these funds. I mean, it's to their ultimate long-term benefit But it does require time, it does require costs, and it's something we had to begin earlier in our process because a lot of these LPAs are not of institutional quality. And, you know, when you're an emerging fund manager, you're not thinking about that. But given that we've been around for so long, we know that LPAs matter, especially if things can get ugly down the road. It's a very important piece for us, and and we've learned that we have to spend a lot of time, you know, helping these GPs do this. And we need to start that earlier in the process. Yeah, I do think there's room for institutionalization of things around emerging manager to make sure that the focus really is on investing acumen versus all these other things that sometimes aren't in place. And, you know, fortunately, there are groups like Omni that are looking to bring more transparency in what is in, you know, deal docs and, you know, in the future, you know, things like LPAs. The IOS has this to all of emerging GPs or, or fund managers of what their anti-portfolio is and you know what company did they miss and why did they miss it and what did they learn from it. But is there a fund that you saw early that you passed on, but now you think back to it and say, hey, you know, we missed it. It was the right decision. But now you believe it is going to be a consistent top decile type of performer. 
So we started investing in seed in late 2016, so the funds we've invested in and passed on are not in the ground long enough yet to make that call, as it takes about 78 years for an outlier to develop. But we realize markets can be super random, with some vintage years having extreme amounts of outliers and some having very little. So there's going to be some GPs that are extremely lucky, and we've definitely passed on those. You know, those funds will invest in outliers that we don't get exposure to, and then those funds will invest in outliers that we do get exposure to. But our strategy is really to stay consistently invested in early stage venture, capturing at least 20% of the seed ecosystem. And we feel that gives us a high probability of capturing the mean return. So maybe moving away from a specific fund manager, but In general, as you are evaluating different managers, what is the most important characteristic in your mind or determinant of a successful seed stage manager? You know, if you look back at some of the most successful seed funds, Felicis, Founder Collective, First Round Capital, Uncork Capital, you know, now some of them have moved up into that Series A space while some have stayed in the seed ecosystem. But what they all had in common in their first few funds was extremely diversified portfolios. And I think understanding the structure of the market that you invest in, which is not just seed, that applies to all asset classes, is key to being successful. Also, your success is really dependent on, you know, how good is your deal flow. So I think it's really coming down to what's the structure of the market you play in, create a portfolio that matches it, and have good deal flow. I agree with that. And I also do think, you know, just from what I've seen, there are different ways to make money as a fund manager. And likely there are ways to increase the probability of those outlier returns. And I I really like, you know, how you think about things from a data standpoint, applying it and investing in a way that is actually quite different from, you know, the majority of LPs. I've had a lot of fun on this conversation, Jamie. I really appreciate you being on. This has been super fun. Thank you for having me. And and I look forward to, you know, working together in the future and, and continuing to invest in 20 to 25 more seed funds. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Venture Unlocked. We really hope you enjoyed it. To learn more about Jamie and Virtus Investment Management, be sure to go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify, where you'll find detailed notes on the show. While you're there, please leave us a rating and review as it really helps us out and hit the subscribe button in order to get each and every episode as soon as it's released. 